Um, We'll be reading from Genesis 21. Um, That's on page 19 of your pew Bibles. And we'll be going through the whole chapter. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac, when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham, was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly, because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. At the time of Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his forces said to sorry, page stuff, Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham bought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set, two Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. 
So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. We'll get Jeff up. We'll pray for him before he speaks. Father God, uh, I just thank you for Jeff um, and everything that you've been preparing in him to bring before us tonight. I also thank you for all of the sermons that you've uh, preached through him and the other pastors on Abraham and Sarah's lives that led up to this night. Um, I just thank you for the way that you intend to expand upon what we've learned um, and bring new insight through Jeff tonight. Um, I just pray that you'll be with him as he speaks and you'll touch the hearts of those in this room tonight who hear the words that you speak through him. I pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that wonderful prayer. And, um, and yes, it is a privilege to um, be able to open this story. I hope you've noticed as we've moved through this very rich and important part of Scripture that um, it, it takes a different way of reading. Sure, the stories are interesting in and of themselves. Uh, there's, there's a lot happening and uh, they're memorable. But uh, we've got to realise that, again, these stories are written that we may learn God, that we might see what it is to be the people of God and understand how to trust him and believe in him. These are theological stories. Uh, they teach us about God. They're freighted with a lot of uh, uh, heavy-duty information. Uh, we've just got to be able to look for it and know how to find it. Now, you've also noticed that as we've moved through these, these chapters, these 10, 11, 12 chapters about Abraham, they're, they're, they're woven together like a plait or like, a, like a, a bit of rope. And so characters appear in one chapter, then go under the surface and then come up again somewhere else. And, and they develop and these, these characters are brought back onto the stage. We've got to understand this is how the writer is, is developing the theology and how to understand what it is to be a people of faith in this God, Yahweh. And this story uh, um, concerns certain characters which we, we read about in tandem, the two women, Abram's wife, Sarah. Uh, the woman that has the promise of a son that takes a long time to come and the slave woman who was her maidservant, Hagar, uh, who also has a son. So for two women, two sons, there are two exit stories, one where uh, Hagar runs away after being persecuted by Sarah and this one where she's driven out. Uh, there are two promises of God to these two sons and these two stories are then they come to this head in chapter 21, surrounded by chapter 20, and the end of chapter 21, we just read this crazy story about seven sheep and a well. And uh, these, these arrangements themselves are quite deliberate narrative techniques to get across the point. It's like the story that we're reading tonight is like a sandwich where the good stuff's in the middle, but the sandwich tells us the theology that we're meant to see in the middle. Uh, 
and that's the nature of this sort of uh, sandwich structure. Now, <clears throat> if we could just recap back to Lawrence's sermon two or three weeks ago, was on this this powerful story of uh, Sarah, who faced with the delayed promise, uh, and there was a whole lot of cultural stuff happening here. Um, <clears throat> she decides that uh, God's promise needs helping along. Now, at this stage, God had promised this child when Abram was 75 and Sarah would have been 65. And uh, nothing happens up until chapter 16 when now, nine or ten years later, there's still no kid. They're getting older, they're getting desperate, as Lauren pointed out. And Sarah decides the Lord's will needs a little bit of helping along. I suspect that she had a little bit of residual paganism happening there and she thought that if she handed her maidservant to Abram, it might excite the juices in the heavenlies and like a good fertility worshipper, that she might become fertile. It actually has these words that, um, that she might grow up or develop and that was her hope and now she hands this maidservant to her husband as a wife not just as a concubine in 1610 she is a wife it's meant to be just in name only but as the days go by she starts to notice that Hagar is sort of taking liberties and she's hanging around the family acre a little bit too much she should be out the back with the other maidservants peeling spuds and folding washing, but she and Abraham seem to have a thing going on. He's a little bit interested in this young, fertile woman. And rivalry takes over, and, and Sarah gets very snitchy and basically tells uh, Abram that this woman's got to go. And uh, Abram says, and I think it's a sign of his guilt, that immediately he realises he's been caught out in his thought world, and his wives know these things, and he basically says, she's all yours, <laughs> she's still a slave, uh, she's all yours. Hands are over, and Sarah gets the nails out and starts really grinding into the life of Hagar. Hagar can't handle it, she runs to the bush, takes her child, and there the Lord finds her. She fled somewhere to a... Have we got this map? Let's see. Now, sorry about all those arrows there. It's, um, you know, I think I got this map off dial, dial before you dig. But um, uh, I don't know what they mean. <laughs> but um, uh, you can just see there's a guess of Gera. Abram now has moved from Mamre right in the middle. Remember the Oaks of Mamre? And he's been happy there. And he's, he's, a, he's got to move around to find land for his livestock and so he moves down into Philistine territory a big city of Gera where the king is a king indeed he has his own militia he's a pretty heavy duty guy and this is where it all is happening now we're not quite sure but we're pretty sure that past Rehoboth down about where, those, where the gas meets the electricity that's, uh, that's where this woman flees to, it's quite a trek and she's gone down to this um, wadi uh, where the Lord finds her. And I find it interesting 
that he comes to comfort her and he says, uh, you know, what are you doing here? And she just has no plans. She just says, well, you, know, you ought to know I'm being persecuted and you know, this is why I'm here. And, and it's fascinating that as the Lord, it says three times that he spoke to her and, and uh, he says, return to your mistress and submit to her. No movement, no comment. That doesn't sound a great idea. Then the angel of the Lord, which is the Lord manifesting himself, said to her, I'll surely multiply your offspring so that it can be numbered for a multitude. You know, good things are around the corner. No comment, no movement. And then the angel of the Lord said, <clears throat> Behold, you're pregnant and shall bear a son, and you'll call his name Ishmael. The Lord names this child Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your reflection. So the name actually means God hears. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. <laughs> and he'll be, his hand will be against everyone and his, everyone's hand against him and he'll dwell over against his enemies. I mean, he's going to bring conflict into the family of Abraham. At that point, she's all ears. And she thinks, hmm. And so she calls the name of the Lord. She worships him and she says, therefore, you have seen what I've been going through. That's terrific. And therefore, the well was called Beer Laharoi, which lies between Kadesh and Barit. Basically, she's interested when it means retribution. And she's heading home. Uh, but uh, knowing that the Lord is on her side in the form of her son, who'll be a thorn in Sarah's side. Now, that's, we need to know that when we come to this story. And then in chapter 21. In verses 1 to 7, we finally have the final proof of God's faithfulness to his covenant. And he, he comes out and uh, um, we read uh, the uh, very first verse there. I'll turn back to it. <clears throat> uh, the Lord visited Sarah, as he said, uh, and several times he's pointed it out. And we've been waiting for this for 25 years and what astounds me is how understated it is. Sarah conceived, she boils a son in the time that God had said. She calls him Isaac, he's circumcised on the eighth day. It's very, you know, it's like a police diary account of the thing. Uh, not very dramatic. I would have thought it would be a lot more fanfare, a lot more, isn't that great stuff? But there it is, matter of fact. And Sarah herself finishes this little section and says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears about this will laugh over me, uh, maybe not at me, but laugh over me. That's so hilarious that God has been able to do this amazing thing. As uh, remember, she was the one who laughed when the first time she heard about this crazy scheme. So, yeah, this is the culmination, and it's so important theologically that here God has made this promise which seemed absolutely impossible, and He lets it drag out so it's totally impossible just to prove that this is the God. He creates things out of nothing and he needs no help and he makes this child come out uh, uh, in his good time. And that's uh, the nature of this God that is, is trying to demonstrate how he works through these stories and through these people and these characters. But then we jump ahead and in the next paragraph, in verse 8, we read the child grew and was weaned. And this is three years later. Now at this time... Ishmael is 17 years old, and you can do the maths and work that out. Uh, Abram was 84 when Ishmael was born, and now he's 100. 16, 
Actually, 14. 14 plus 3, that's 17. Anyway, uh, he he finally um, is weaned and Abraham makes a great feast on that day. That's a significant thing in the ancient world when a child is now... You're confident the child is going to live. They're not dependent on their mother totally all the time. And uh, so that's a festivity. Now, when you throw a feast, these sorts of feasts, they, they were drinking fests. That's a celebration that we're thinking of here. And I think that's what's behind this. This is more like Oktoberfest than the royal show. It's really, you know, uh, and, and people overindulge. And in the middle of that, wherever alcohol crops up in this... Uh, this book of Genesis, it always means trouble and terrible things happen and people get themselves into all sorts of situations that they never live down. And uh, this is the sort of thing that happens here. here. Sarah saw Hagar's son. <coughs> we, we don't get the name. It's all depersonalised. not Ishmael. It's the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she brought to, born to Abraham. And the word is, it's translated in our version, mocking, but it's really the word laughing. You see, there's this play on this word laughter all the way through, and we're deliberately meant to see that. And I think the kid was just tipsy, and uh, he is overindulged, and he's a bit goofy. And, and uh, Sarah sees that, and, and suddenly the penny drops. And she sees this lad and transfers a whole lot of stuff that's been pent up about his mum, probably looks like his mum, probably sounds like his mum, and the resentment that she has been storing away for years suddenly comes out through the fissure of that laughter. And she is uh, really angry. Now, why is she angry? One, because Abram is 100, and I don't think he's going to make 200, He's uh, close to cashing in his chips, so to speak. And Ishmael, legally, is the firstborn son. And in the law courts of this country, the firstborn son gets a double portion more than all the other children, how many there are. And the rest of the kids have to divide up the lot. He gets the big share. And yet he's not the child of promise. Isaac is. And so she, she is uh, adamant and she gets to Abraham and she says, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of this slave woman. You can tell she's not exactly on Sarah's uh, party list, is she? Shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Uh, she sees Isaac as a rival as she saw Hagar as a rival. Now Isaac as a rival to her son's legitimate fortune. And cast out is a legal term. It doesn't just mean send out. It really means divorce. Rip up the contract with this woman. Let's make this legal that she has no truck and trade in this family. That's what she's on about. Now this really saddens Abram because he has grown to love this child and this child is his son and yet he has to concede that Isaac is the son of promise. And he's sad in this day, but God comes to console him in the next verse and says, don't be sad, 
because this boy uh, of the son of your slave woman, do what Sarah says. And through Isaac, you know, this Sarah idea all the way along was uh, rich and foolish. Isaac is the, the son of promise and he is the one that's going to uh, bring the blessing that I've been talking about. And, and uh, so do as you will. But also, I'm going to bless this particular son, Ishmael, because just because he's your offspring. And so Abraham responds positively. And uh, the, the uh, next day, he gets up early and he gets to um, put Sarah and Ishmael away. Isn't it fascinating? And I find it fascinating. She's been a slave. She's served this family for 20 years. I'm, I'm getting a bit of echo here. Are you troubled by that? No? Cool. <laughs> and so she's, uh, she's uh, 20 years of service that she's done. And, um, and look what Abraham does. He basically gives her a skin of water, enough to get through half a day, and a cut lunch. Now, this is a guy that has been blessed and blessed and blessed. You would have thought he could spare an ass or a camel or an, you know, an old donkey with bad teeth, but he doesn't give her anything. He just pops his skin over her shoulder. And I think he pops the son's hand on her shoulder because in the early morning glare, this boy is uh, still getting over the, the night before, and off they go towards a wilderness called the Wilderness of Beersheba. And off she heads. Now, is that mean-spiritedness? Is that sheer injustice? Is that fear of Sarah? I think not. I think what is happening here is a mark of incredible faith that Abram trusts what God has just said to him, that this God, whether it be short time or long, keeps his promise. And he's got his own son there as a witness to the fact Isaac is the promise that no one could have believed. And God has said that he's going to provide for this boy and he's going to be a father of many. He's going to have kings and nations coming from him. This is the God in Abraham's book that he has learnt the hard way through the foolishness of that couple, that this God doesn't need their help. And so he doesn't give them any help. God is their help and he will look after them. And so off they go. It's fascinating that we're told here that this one goes off as the child. She goes with the child. It's not because the author is confused about what a 17 year old is. It's because as parents can only know, your children especially in times of predicament are your children. They are, you see the child they were as you see them in adulthood. They're always the child despite their actual stature. Now when the water and the skin was gone, and this is probably just a few hours later, then we read about this dreadful story, amazing story, where it says in my version, she put the child under a bush. Right? They run out of food, they run out of water, they're in a wilderness. 
She'd sat off and she'd just been following little thickets after thickets because where things grow there must be water, I guess. And so this is what she's done. She's just followed grove after grove on the horizon until she saw the next one. She'd been wandering around, maybe even in circles, and finally she's run out of water and she's run out of energy and her son is dying of dehydration, probably due to some of the stuff he's consumed the day before. And there she hears him in his death throes. There's not much she can do. And uh, so what does she do? It's fascinating here. We mustn't misinterpret what she does. When it says that she put the child under one of these, it's actually that word that we read earlier, cast. She cast him. Now, she didn't toss him under a bush. She cast him under the bush. That is, what she is doing is doing something morally, something legally. She's relinquishing her motherhood for the sake of the survival of this child. How could that be? And then she goes off and it says, you know, good bow shot in the distance. And she says, let me not look at the death of this child. She just prays to no one in particular. But what she's praying is not that she won't see it, but let the death not happen. (laughs) This is what she's getting at. And I think what she's doing is the same thing that centuries later, 500 years later, the mother of Moses does exactly the same thing and it's the same language in the book of Exodus where the mother of Moses is about to lose her son because of a divine, a kingly decree and, you know, the story, Sunday school story, she puts a kid in the basket, pushes him down the Nile and she goes off a certain distance in eyeshot to watch what happens. And this is what Sarah is doing. She's putting that kid out there in the vain and forlorn hope that someone might be travelling this way towards water. And if they see her, he's her responsibility. But if they find him, they just, on a slim chance, might find economic value in her son and acquire him for themselves. This is her hope. This is why she moves out of sight and out of earshot that this kid might have a chance of survival and she has relinquished her motherhood. She wanted to be with this child. Can you imagine any mother at the point at which a child is dying? I can remember being in my last minute of life as a 6-year-old and I can remember what my mother was doing. She was disobeying every command of every nurse and every, every doctor in that ward. They weren't going to get her an inch away from me as I was drowning after a bad operation. That's what she would do. That's what every mother would do. But this mother, she's not saving her own skin. She's saving his. She moves away. That's the last card that she's got to play. And she leaves that card in God's hands. Nobody comes. The minutes tick away. She can't help. Just sobbing and weeping as she hears the death rattle in the distance. At that point, 
we read that the Lord intervenes a second time. And we read that he hears the boy's cry. He doesn't answer her prayer. He, he himself picks up on this kid's distress. And he says to her, take him in your hand again, which is an amazing statement. And effectively it is saying, take up the mantle of motherhood again. Grasp him. Take on that role because I have got plans for this boy. And she fills him in as he has as re- recently filled uh, Abraham in on the same destiny of this one. I'm going to make him into a great nation. And by the way, lift up your eyes because just over there there's a well. And that's the first step in the story of Ishmael. And he goes on and becomes the father of the Ishmaelites, who elsewhere in scripture are called the Midianites. You've heard of them. In our day, in our centuries, they're called the Bedouin. They are the people who come from this promise as witness to God in our day and our time. And he lives in the wilderness. He becomes an expert with the bow and uh, his mother steps out of the family and gets him married to an Egyptian. Now that's a, a fascinating thing. What I think it is telling us is something which you need to see in the light of the stupid story that's tacked onto this. A story about a king and Abraham having an argument about a well. Now, just to run you back, we haven't looked at chapter 20, but what has happened is, remember Abraham, he he blows it again. He goes into Philistine territory. He acts just the same way as he did down in Egypt. He says to Sarah, you know, pretend you're my sister. Sarah gets taken into the harem. She must have been one incredible 90-year-old. I mean, I must have one of them. (laughs) I like older women. (laughs) But what was it? And she's taken to the harem again, and he um, he is then... uh, the king is judged by God and, and God says, I'm going to strike you dead. You know, that's, a, you know, that's the apple of my eye, that, that woman and that man's, uh, that, the man that owns that woman. That's, he's my special prophet. Now, it's because of that that Abimelech again does the same sort of thing and he does the right thing. He hands Sarah back and he's blessed by God and he blesses Abraham and his own wives start bearing children, etc. That's happened before this. But you see, Abimelech now knows that in his territory lives someone who is inordinately dangerous. And he just wants to get some sort of legal safeguard with this guy who's marauding around with a god who strikes you dead if you do the wrong thing by him. He wants to be on the right side of this guy. Let's have a covenant. Abraham says, oh, yeah, let's do that. Let's shake on that. And just as they're about to deal in the covenant and set it up, Abraham goes, I've got a little gripe. And he brings out the fact that I, I, I dug a well here recently. You see, this story it just says it happens around the same time as this other story. I dug a well here and your blokes are pushing my blokes out of it. It's for my cattle, it's for my sheep. Uh, you know, I want that settled. And, and so how are we going to do this? Here, here's seven of my best sheep. Now, the idea is that if you accepted a gift, you're into a contract. You take these seven sheep, we have a contract that this is my well. Got that? Abimelech says, whatever you want. <laughs> He's not about to ruffle feathers of Abraham, the guy with 
strings in heaven. And so he accepts a sheep. And that's why this place, this wilderness into which this woman drifts aimlessly around in circles, seemingly going nowhere, this place is called Beersheba, the well of the seven, to this day. Anyone interested in First World War history knows that our armed forces did some pretty remarkable things around Beersheba in the First World War. It's such a strategic point because it's the only water for miles around. Battles were fought over weeks in 50 degrees centigrade in the First World War to get those, those, that well at Beersheba. You see, what has happened here, the Lord is saying something about how he works, that even before this woman was cast out, this slave woman was sent out and divorced, sent out into nowhere. The Lord had already used the free decisions of rather fragile and, and flawed people like Abraham and Abimelech. He'd used their fear to provide for this woman so his promise would come true. That's a remarkable thing. It tells us something about the sovereignty of God in our lives. And you might be someone who is going to work tomorrow or you might be in a relationship or a family where it's pretty tough. I can remember working for situations where I'd park my car or the company car in the car park and find it very difficult to open the door on a Monday morning. I've worked in those places. And at those times, what's your, what's your primary thought? I must be in the wrong place. God doesn't seem to understand what this is doing to me. Oh, yes, he does. That's how sovereignty works. There are incidents in your life. There are pains in your life. There is even persecution in your life at times. But there are incidents, but there are no accidents. God, the sovereign God, seems to use the free and stupid decisions of humans and their bad behaviour and their worst to make a collage of salvation history. And he eventually forms the stepping stones through which the church comes to be saved and plucked out of oblivion in history. We've got to take a longer eye view of our lives in God's great scheme of things. Everything that's happening to you today, everything you're learning at university, everything you're, you're picking up as skill sets in your work life, God will use. Those things are not wasted, as onerous as they might be. Well, let's uh, wrap this up. Where do these characters crop up again? If you read the rest of this book, and we're going to draw this to a close next week, Isaac is born, he grows up, has a lovely relationship with his mum, has Jacob, who then becomes Israel. Uh, he has 12 kids, and, and then Joseph um, is the, the one who is the favourite of his dad. And one day he's put in a well, remember that story? He's put in a well by his brothers to persecute the, the living daylights out of their little uh, trumped-up brother. And um, who should come along? But the Midianites the grandchildren of Ishmael. And he's sold to the Midianites who take that kid down to Egypt and the children of Israel end up going down and Joseph saves his brothers in Egypt. 
You see, it's all part of this one onflowing story. It's a wonderful story of God's providence and his salvation history, which is not able to be knocked off uh, the rails. I just find it fascinating that for 400 years, the children of Israel are in Egypt and they lose their status and end up being persecuted just like Hagar was. It's fascinating. And finally, they're liberated and they go into the desert. Now, the Lord understands human nature. And he knows that when you've been persecuted, it can scar you and make you nasty. And so when the Lord gathers his people in the desert, in the exodus, he gives them certain laws that they're to carry out. He gives them twice when they're first in the desert and then they wander around for 40 years and then he gives them Deuteronomy, the same things the second time, fleshed out a bit more. Deuteronomy means second law. And, uh, and it's interesting that if you look up in the laws, the law of God, you'll find these words, and you shall not, not wrong the stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, that's the reason, and shall not afflict any widow or orphan. It's fascinating that the Lord has been here before. That sounds like another story, doesn't it? The affliction of widows and orphans. If you afflict him, I will surely hear his cry. Sounds like Ishmael to me. And my anger will be kindled. And then 40 years later, he, he puts it in the form of the curse. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due to the stranger. Now what I find really interesting in all these laws and the laws when they're quoted by the prophets is that they're always in the singular. He doesn't say don't treat strangers, a group, a certain way. It's always the stranger, the stranger, the stranger. And you know what the words for the stranger are? It's the Hebrew word Hagar. That's the word, the stranger. I just find it incredible that in the law of God, which is meant to govern the people of God forever, that this, the, this, this woman sets the precedent and the precedent has become the principle. That our God has a real soft spot for the oppressed, even those who aren't part of his family. And I think this has got something to do with Mission 101. The Lord knows he needed to teach his people that there is a real danger that when they become powerful again that they will recommit the signs. It's, 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 if A oppresses B, then B, when they get on top, will re-oppress A. The, the victims of Monday become the oppressors on Friday. That's human history. It's human psychology. We just build up such degrees of resentment. But the Lord says we're going to break the cycle of resentment. We're going to be a different sort of people here. And uh, we're not going to treat the stranger that way ever again. You know, it's sadly in church history that precedent has been forgotten, lest we forget Serbia, lest we forget Northern Ireland, lest we forget the country of revival, Rwanda. They forgot that principle. And the bloodshed that flowed is heinous. We need to understand that principle. In our lives and in this church, we need to understand Mission 101. 
we can misrepresent the heart of God. The heart of God cannot be... We cannot confuse the gospel with the political, economic liberation of oppressed people. People can be released from oppression and they still need the gospel. They still need to be reconciled with God. You aren't saved by your victimhood. That's not a magic bullet that gets you into heaven. But I think we conservatives are even liable to commit an equally mistaken sin. You cannot constrict the compassion of God to just salvation alone. Compassion is not something you do to save people. People deserve compassion because God is the God who hears the cry of the child. That's the God we worship. I, for the life of me, don't want the job. I don't know how he bears it, hearing the cries of kids tonight in Ukraine or in northern Nigeria. The decimation, pointless decimation of human potential. But we have this one God and he's got a heart on the one hand. It's one heart. It's a heart to save and a heart to be compassionate and providential to even those who don't even give him a second thought. That's the sort of God we have. And that's what affects our mission. And my goodness, haven't we got a living illustration of that amongst us tonight in the form of the Jennings family? That capacity to hold both together without confusing them, that indeed is the mission God has given us all. We have a good God. Amen.